0: If you got your Bibles, we are in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. If you weren't with us last week, we tried to kind of give you an overview of the book and how we're going to be going, going at it. And, um, and, I, and I mentioned last week that it, it was hard. It was, you know, in a lot of ways about 45 to 50 years of processing and a lot of processing the last eight years and try to fit that into 30 minutes. And then I roll into this week and literally Hebrews 1, to 1-4 may be one of the greatest texts, not the greatest texts in the Bible, when you think about what it reveals to us about who Jesus is. So, so this week I went from how am I going to get it all in to just Lord help me not to blow it, help me to make much of Jesus because this is really good. So let's, let's read it together. God, after he spoke long ago to the prophets When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, Just to remind you what we've been talking about last week, we don't know who the author is. And so often in a book, the author will start with kind of introducing themselves, who they're writing to, and uh, maybe even who's with them. But not here. He just jumps in. We know that there's a strong possibility and, and, and focus on the fact that the people that he's writing to are coming out of a Jewish background. Uh, because he he quotes so much of the Old Testament. And he even starts here. Notice what he says, how that he spoke long ago to the fathers, right? Well, as Christians, you know, would have been the disciples who were still along. There's an Old Testament, and you just have to continually keep that in mind in the book of Hebrews. And what he's saying is, is this, that in days long ago, God spoke to us Through the prophets. That's how God originally revealed himself. He revealed his character and he revealed what he wanted us to know through the prophets that he sent. Men and women who he put his word upon them to speak it or to write it for uh, the, the people of God. Peter puts it like this in 2 Peter 1. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now what's interesting is the phrase that he uses here, in many portions and in many ways. So in the Greek it's, it's a little bit of a play on words, but the idea is, is that he used many prophets and he, and he revealed his word in many different ways and then they revealed his word in many different ways. You kind of start thinking about what does it mean in many portions and many ways? Well, think about how Moses received the word of God. Up on a mountain in the midst of the thundering of God's voice the fire of God's presence. Then you think of Elijah who's down in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula right there in the middle of nowhere, and God now speaks to a still small voice. You have Ezekiel, God revealed to him through visions, right? So he's always transported and a vision of what is going to come to Daniel, who God typically sent an angel or a dream, so in many portions, in many ways. But the many ways is also then how he instructed his prophets to communicate the message to us. So you have ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah who were, you know, the preachers. They were, in, they were told, write this down. Go read it to the people. Uh, you have others like Hosea and Ezekiel. Man, have you ever read Ezekiel? And it was you act this out right so ezekiel lays on his side you know for what over a year uh, doing the 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 siege of jerusalem you have hosea who's got to go marry a wife who's a prostitute and oh by the way she's going to go back into prostitution and you then need to go redeem her right you are showing god's love in the midst of this to malachi who when he writes he writes with questions right? Why have you robbed God? What do you mean we've robbed God? And he answers, and he goes question to question to David. And some people might go, well, David was a prophet. Well, I think the writer of Hebrews certainly thinks he was, because he's going to quote him all throughout his book. And so David, as he writes prophecies, he, he puts them in a song. So, The whole idea here is that God long ago spoke to us and he spoke to us in different ways and through different methods and through different people, but in these last days. Last days. Now, it's really easy to kind of read this and you go, okay, long ago and last days. To think about this being in the sense of time. That, okay, so now more recently he has spoken to us through his son. And I'm sure... That's not necessarily a wrong, but I don't think that's a full understanding. When you talk about the idea of last days, again, you got to think about this and understand the the Old Testament significance. So often, the the prophets, when they spoke of the day of the Messiah, talked about it now in the last days. In the last days. So when he says now in these last days, I don't think it's just the fact that this happened recently. I I think it's more the idea that the time has come. Uh, Maybe the best way to think about it is in relation to what the author says in Hebrews 9 6, but now once at the consummation of the ages, the last days right? In fact, you know that you and I today are in the last days. I get asked that a lot, right? Especially now with everything going on. Are we in the last days? That's a really easy answer. Yes. Yes. And it has nothing to do with COVID and it has nothing to do with the rise of China and it has nothing to do with even Israel becoming a nation again. It has to do with the Messiah has come back or has come the first time, right? And that's when the last days started, And so we have always lived in the last days. And when you think about that from this perspective, you think of what Isaiah, when he prophesied, he says, now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief. Now, has that part of it happened yet? No. But has the beginning part of that happened? Yes, the Messiah has come for the first time. And now he's gonna come for the second time. And his whole point here is this. There was, a, there was a desire on some part of some of the folk who, who grew up under Judaism, under the law, under the sacrifices, under all of the Old Testament rituals. They have now come to Christ living by grace, and there, there's a, a pressure to go back. To, to, to move back under law. And his whole point in, in this book is this idea that, no, Jesus is far superior, far superior. And so he says, you know, you revere the Old Testament prophets, and you should. I mean, you hold the, the, the Pentateuch uh, as the very word of God, and it is. But what you got to understand in these last days now, what we have is the actual living Word of God, which is far greater, far superior. Jesus has come as that ultimate, final, at the consummation of the ages, revelation of God. You value, you hold with great esteem how He, he expressed Himself and revealed Himself back in the day and that was all good and you should ah but his revelation in these last days is far superior because jesus is the living word of god the perfect expression you can't help but think of john 1 right in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god and the word became flesh god revealed himself his character who he is and what he wanted us to know in human flesh and he dwelt among us we got to eat with him we got to listen to him we got to watch him in action And we saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus is so far superior to all that has come before. And that's the heart of what he's just, I mean, right from the onset, folk, what he's trying to do is to say, listen, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate. He's all you need. And now he begins... With this sevenfold description of who Jesus is, and this sevenfold description is, is really at the heart. You know, last week we talked about themes. We we talked about that one of the themes of the book is the superiority of Christ, and now he just lays it out. In fact, in the Greek, it's it's really one sentence, a big long run-on sentence. Seven things. The first thing he tells us is what? In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Heir of all things. What does that mean? It means it all belongs to him. He he, he is the one to whom everything belongs, to which he owns it all. Uh, You go back to the garden. And you're reminded that man was made to rule, right? Really, this world was a was a gift to man. It was part of an inheritance. In fact, God said to Adam and Eve, you know, be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the beast of the air. And then man messed it all up. He walked in sin, he rebelled against God man lost his inheritance. Now there's a curse on the land. There's a curse that goes with the animals, right? They don't like us anymore after the flood and all those kind of things. But Jesus is heir to it all because he is the second Adam and he walked in fulfillment and so God has appointed him and made him heir of all things. In Ephesians 1, he says, and he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head head over all things to the church. It all belongs to Jesus. You think about the greatness of Moses. You think about the greatness of Abraham. You think about the greatness of Daniel. But yet, how it pales when you understand that Jesus is the heir to it all. It all belongs to him. I was thinking this week of that picture that we're given in Revelation chapter 5. The seven seal book, right? It's, it's really not a book, it's a scroll. As best we understand, written on the outside of that scroll is, is in essence the inheritance, the, what we've lost and who was able to redeem what man lost when he sinned. And remember, John looks, and they looked under heaven and earth and under the earth and could not find anyone worthy. And John weeps hysterically because he knows there's no hope without somebody redeeming what we've lost. And then one of the elders says, John, don't weep anymore. One has been found, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he lifts his eyes. What does he see? A lamb as it had been slain. And they sing to him a new song, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to redeem, right? He is the heir of all things. And so now he begins to break the seals, the judgments that have got to be poured out on the earth. They get to the seventh seal. Remember, it opens up now seven new judgments, the trumpet judgments. And you get to Revelation chapter 11, it's that seventh trumpet judgment is being opened. And this is what it says, The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus is heir to it all. Folk, no matter what's being played out today, either here in America or here in Goodyear or here in this world, Jesus is heir to it all. It all belongs to him. And it is just a matter of time until he comes and takes his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords. Not only is he heir to it all, he's the one who created it all. He made it all. Notice what he says through whom he also made the world. You know, this is one of those themes when you look at all the passages that deal with Christology. You you go back to John 1, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. All things, all things. By the way, all means all. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He made it all. So not only is he heir of all things, he is the creator of all things. You think of that passage in Colossians 1 where Paul details the deity of Christ and he says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created, both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, were thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And if you were with us, when we looked at that passage a number of years ago, when we were studying the book of Colossians, there's three pieces for by him, really maybe better translated, in him. The idea is that he is the source. So all of the creative energy, all of the wisdom that took to design and to imagine what this would be was in Christ. All the power with which it would be needed to be created and sustained was in him. And then he comes back down. All things have been created through him. So he's actually the agent of creation. So you go back to Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light. That was Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. He is the agent of creation. But he's also the goal of creation. It is for him. Why? Because he's heir to it all. It all belongs to him. What's kind of interesting Again, we lose it in the English. Uh, through him also he made the world. Most times in the New Testament, when you read world, the Greek word that was translated was cosmos. And it has the idea of material world. That's not the word he uses here. The, the word that he, Greek word he uses here is the word that we would translate, uh, kind of comes out "eon." time, space. He made it all. It's not just simply the, the physical world that he made, but, but he, he made the universe. He made time. He made space. He made the human soul. He made it all. He created all things. See, Jesus is all you need. The third thing that he says here. And then in verse 3 is, and he is the radiance of his glory. The radiance. Jesus radiates the glory of God. And what's interesting is the word there for radiant is is not the idea of reflecting. So it's not like, you know, you go into a... You go into a house right that 's got a dark room. What do they do? They put up a mirror right so they 'll reflect whatever lights in there try to lighten the thing up right the The moon reflects the light of the sun right it doesn 't radiate out that 's not the word in fact, the word uh, radiate has the idea of brightness from the source so when you think of when you think of the radiance of the sun and you think of the uh, of the the Sun rays that come to this earth that bring energy, that bring life, that bring heat, that bring light—all of it—that It's just—it is a part of the sun that, that we get to experience. Well, in the same way, Jesus is the radiance of His glory. He is the power of God. He is the majesty of God. He is the—he is the power of God, just simply in human flesh. It's the part we never get to touch the sun. We get to touch the rays of the sun as they come to this earth but in Jesus we get to actually touch the power of God the person of God he is the radiance of his glory and then that beautiful expression the exact representation of his nature the exact representation of his nature the Greek word here is character, not as in Gary Fadley is quite a character. That's not the idea. It uses the word character in the idea of a stamp, a typeset. There's a character, right? It's a letter. We all know the letter J is that character. It's, it's that idea of, of being stamped, of um, of a mold that's being poured. He is the exact representation. He is the, the exact character here of God's nature. Kind of reminds you of what Paul told us in Colossians 1.15, that he is the image of the invisible God, the icon, right, that deals with statues, which which deals with the minting of a coin. It, it's perfect, it's exact. It, it is an exact replication. That's who Jesus is. And it's not just of... You know, so often when we think of an icon, we think of a statue, we think of a coin, we think of an image of, you know, of a physical piece. But notice what he says here. He is the exact representation not of what God looks like, but of his nature, his essence, his love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his justice, who God is, his power. Jesus is the exact representation. Why? Because he is God. And and as the exact representation, there is no difference between him and God. That's why Jesus could say if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you listen to me, you've listened to the Father. Because he is the exact representation. The next one, where were we at? Number five, I think, here. He says, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things. The word upholds is in the present tense, so it's kind of a continual process. That he upholds this this world and all things. And, And, of course, I think many of us, you know, our minds run to that picture of the Greek god Atlantis. You remember him? You know, holds up the world, right? If you remember the picture of Atlantis, you know, he's down, straining under the weight. That's not Jesus, right? Because Jesus doesn't just uphold the world. He upholds it all. The entire universe. And he's not straining under the weight. He actually just upholds it by the word of his power. It all happens and exists today simply because of the power of Christ. Uh, Paul told us the same thing in Colossians 1:17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now what does that mean? That he upholds all things. And we could probably spend quite a bit of time Talking about this, thinking about this, would encourage it. So it's a great thing. What, did, what does it mean? That he upholds all things by his power. And I could be wrong. I, so this is this is not the Lord says. This is Steve, right? So may take this with a grain of salt. But here's what I've often wondered when it says that he upholds all things by his power. So back in the 20s and 30s, as they're starting to mess with the atom, right, they're, they're beginning to try to figure this thing out. One of the hard pieces that they struggled with was that in the nucleus of an atom, there are two protons in there, right, like charged things. And of course, what we know is you try to put two like charges of a magnet together, they rebel. So how do two protons sit in the middle of there? With this electron flying around on the outside, and uh, there, there's been lots of theories. The the one that probably has endured the longest is what they call. And I am not a scientist. I ran this by my my nuclear physicist last night, uh, and and he he kind of he would lean towards this because actually this has kind of gotten poo-hooed, Uh at, in the years since, but what they called a strong nuclear force, something that maybe we don't quite understand, but it's what holds those those positive charges together. And I've always kind of wondered if that strong nuclear force, which we really don't understand and can't explain, it's just we kind of see that something's there. If maybe when it says he upholds all things by the word of his power, it's just simply the word of Jesus. Because when you get to the end of it all, right, uh, Revelation 21, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Peter tells us this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed. What an interesting expression. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Is it on that day when there is a, you know, we we talk about deconstruction, right? Well, there's going to be a deconstruction of this universe. Is it maybe in that moment that the one who upholds all things by the word of his power ceases to uphold. And all the atoms blow apart so that, oh, by the way, did you all know that you and I are going to have like front row seats to the recreation of it all? Have you ever wondered what it was like to have been there when he spoke the world, the universe and all that? You and I are going to get to be there for the recreation. And we're going to get to see it in living color in real time. I've often wondered, if when he says he upholds all things, if maybe God knows something that we just haven't figured out yet. Oh, oh! I got to hurry. I'm sorry. Next one is, and he made purification, and when he had made purification of sin, so Jesus, Jesus is all is the perfect sacrifice, right? He he's the one. So so Adam came, and Adam messed it all up. Adam just screwed up our lives tremendously because he broke our relationship with God. He saddled us with sin. Sin destroys. Sin kills. Sin sin is the thing that brings such pain and hurt into our life. Jesus came back and he fixed it all. And he fixed it so well that there remains no more need for purification. It's done. It's finished. We talked about this last week. We looked at Hebrews 10, and we will many times in this book because it's such a beautiful, it's kind of the hallmark and high point. By this will, we have been, past tense, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. His purification was complete. You know, again, you've got to think in the Old Testament eyes. Well, the purification was never complete. It was enough to cover past sin, but you had to come back in a year. You had to come back at the next festival, and there had to be more sacrifice, right? But Jesus' purification was so great that it not only took care of past sins, but present sins and future sins. It is done once and for all, for by one offering he has perfected for all time. Those who are sanctified. Do you understand what he's trying to say here? Jesus is far greater. Jesus is far superior. Jesus is all you need. Then he finishes with the last one. And he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Of course, the magic John's high is God. And I know you lefties always get offended by this, but the idea is the right hand is the place of power, right? I know, I'm sorry, you've been cursed. Um, but that's, that's, that's the idea. But what does it mean that he sat down? And I was reading a commentator, and I just thought, hmm, I really never stopped to think about it. I thought he, there were some really neat thoughts about this. Number one, sitting down, the right hand is a place of honor, right? That's why the disciples wanted it. That's why John and James, hey, can one of us sit at your left hand, one of you at your right hand, and that's why the others were mad. They wanted it, it was a place of honor. You couldn't help but think of Philippians chapter two that God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a place of honor. Secondly, it's a place of authority, right? Every knee will bow. First Peter three, Peter says, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. They all bow before him. He is seated at the right hand of God. There's another aspect of seated, the work is done. It's finished, it's complete. Hebrews 10, 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down. It's done. There doesn't need to be anything more. And lastly, he sits there at the right hand of God because that's where he has the ability to intercede for us. Paul says, who is the one who condemns? Ah, it's Jesus, who, by the way, is the one who died for us, yes, rather was raised, who today is at the right hand of God. And every time that our enemy makes an accusation, every time our enemy tries to bring it before God, our failures, our, our shortcomings, our sin, Jesus said, no, 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 they're in me. They're in me. It's been covered. And that's the heart of what The author is trying to say, Jesus is all you need. You know, I meet people often who know about Jesus, even believe he died on the cross, and they think that's a good starting point. Now, it's not a starting point. It's all you need. I know we have many here who come out of a Catholic background. Well, Doctrine of the Catholic Church is basically that the cross of Christ gets you back to neutral and now your, your responsibility like Adam could have had to, to move it on. No, Jesus did it all. He's all you need. It's why you don't have to go back under the law. It's why you don't have to do sacrifices. It's not why you, you have to keep working and keep earning. Why? Jesus is all you need. He's sufficient for whatever you're going through today. He's all you need. It is Jesus plus nothing. Both in salvation and all that we need to follow him. If you're here today and you've not come to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, he's all you need. He died for you to become that perfect, purification for your sins. He's all you need.